This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. As our Prime Minister heads off to Washington to continue to strengthen our ties with the U.S. as best he can with uh, the President of the day. Of course, NAFTA always uh, front and center as uh, it is in the process of being uh, negotiated. Uh, But a new poll uh, uh, issued by uh, ECOS and uh, the Canadian press uh, say how we're similar and yet how we're different. And uh, Canadians don't necessarily uh, want to adopt a Canada first foreign policy similar to what uh, the Americans have. So says uh, this poll. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor to Group School of Business, McMaster University. Hello, Marvin. I hope you had a great long weekend. I did indeed. Ready to chat. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. How are we different in this respect? How are we the same? Well, I think I think uh, how we're different is we're reacting to the Donald Trump presidency, and we're not reacting well to it. There's a lot in this poll, but one of the numbers that jumped out at me, for instance, was that 80 percent, 80 percent of Canadians disapprove of the way Donald Trump is acting as president, and that says to us that we do not want Justin Trudeau or our government to at all resemble what the Americans are doing south of the border. Now, part of that is the America First policy: let's build walls rather than be open. We like the idea of let's be more open in what we're doing, uh, and also let's you know let's see if we can find any other differences that separate us on the world landscape. Uh, the more we can find it, the better we position ourselves. So that's how we are, are say different than Americans. The concern of how we're the same, and you're going to go through this also with Benjamin Tall, is that uh, clearly there is still a a populism movement here in Canada. There's basically a group of people who used to view themselves as middle class who feel that they have have slipped a little bit, and part of that blame, they point a finger at immigration. So although a majority of us, 42% of us, still favor the immigration policies that uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are doing, 37% of us, so it's almost tied, the number, are quite opposed to it and say we're letting in too many people, too many invisible minorities, we need to be more selective. And part of this is that feeling that our, our position has slipped away a bit. We're not as economically secure as we once were, and we're looking for someone to blame. And in that way, that's how we're very similar to the United States. Donald Trump hit a nerve when he, for instance, talked about bringing back coal and, and bringing back those jobs to the Rust Belt. And yeah, 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 I want those things back. And that resonates in Canada, too. You talked about 80% also in this uh, survey, 80% said that they weren't happy with Donald Trump, which, you know, I I can completely understand, especially when you, you know, see images of him lobbing paper towels out into a crowd in Puerto Rico as if he's throwing out T-shirts at a Super Bowl party. But does that have to do with policy or just the way he's reacting? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. So, I mean, the example you gave in Puerto Rico is a style example. But then on the weekend, we had him posing with some military people and their spouses. And for some reason, as he's getting ready to have his picture taken with this large group of people, he said, it's the calm before the storm, folks. It's the calm before the storm. Well, what the hell does that mean? Mm. And I think in this situation, as we watch him... um, saber-rattling with North Korea, it it causes us all to be a little afraid of what tomorrow is going to bring. I I honestly think, uh, even under George W. Bush and under Obama, we'd kind of forgotten about the concept of a World War III, and uh, we've seen de-escalation around nuclear weapons, so we paused, we started to breathe a little easier. That's we're not going to think the unthinkable. Well, unfortunately, Donald Trump has brought the unthinkable back into focus. Uh, that's so true that in our generation, it, it really, uh, well, post-World War II, it just never was a thought. Uh, d- does does well, Canada... was a thought a bit under Nixon, and mm-hmm. you know, we saw Nixon rattling yeah. sabers with China. Then you saw the Iran hostage crisis. But then Reagan, who seemed very hawkish to begin with, he was the one that met Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, to all tear down the wall. And all of a sudden, fortunes seemed to turn, and it just seemed like, okay, we've all gotten saner about all of this, and the next presidents followed it. Now we have someone who's taking a less sane path, it seems. If middle, if the middle class was doing stronger, would we be having this discussion? No. Uh, and in fact, this is why I think every politician in the last 15 years has said, let's try to do something for the middle class. The problem is that whatever they've done hasn't really restored any confidence in the middle class. And uh, oddly enough, by the way, Scott, no longer do we talk about upper, middle, lower class. Today, the distinction is between a middle class and what's known as a working class, people who sort of have to work harder in their lives. They're not as white-collared. 
and, and there are more people today identifying, and I think some of this is also precarious employment. Young people getting started don't get a job. They get a contract, and they don't know if that contract's going to be renewed, and if it is renewed, it's not renewed for very long, so I may be out of a job, or there are people who are working two jobs part-time to try to earn full-time wages. I, I think, I'm hopeful that as we move towards the new uh, minimum wage that some people will feel a little less precarious and I think there are some things coming that may make them feel a little better but I think that's the fear at the moment those people who've got good middle-class jobs I think they feel kind but there are a number of younger people who don't feel they can aspire to it and again you'll take this up with Benjamin Tall but even more worrying is when you ask people to look at the future many people who are in the middle class don't believe their children are going to be as well off as they were so there's also this pessimism about their future and that leads to that populism that you see south of the border does Canada view NAFTA the same way as the United States? No. Uh, so, oddly enough, both Canada and Mexico are very concerned. This is a very hot-button issue for the ordinary citizen in both Canada and Mexico. Uh, we all watch this very closely. We were kind of holding our breath. And, you know, we've now completed three waves of negotiation. The fourth one's going to be this weekend in Washington. And we follow it all with great interest. The average American doesn't even know this is going on. Uh, when you survey them, even though it seemed like a hot-button issue during the election, most Americans go, yeah, it's fine the way it is, leave it where it is. They like when Donald Trump says he wants to bring back jobs, what have you, but most Americans don't actually view NAFTA as the cause of those jobs losses. They may view Mexico as the problem, but they don't really think of it in the terms of NAFTA. So for us, we play, pay much closer attention to it, and not as part of this poll, but there was another poll, Scott, recently that came out that said Canadians were even prepared to give some concessions to keep NAFTA going. That's how important we now see NAFTA is to our economy. Again, I worry about that. I, I'm not in the mood to authorize Justin to concede on any one point. I want him to stand toe-to-toe with Donald Trump and, and argue for the Canadian position, just as I would say with Bombardier and other things. We've got nothing to be ashamed about here. So good that Canadians see NAFTA as important, but let's not, let's not talk about giving up the ship just yet. America needs us just as much as we need them. Uh, we certainly heard news today about what's happening in Ingersoll and, and within the automotive industry, uh, the head of the union uh, trying to protect the jobs down there, uh, saying the basic, the, basically the same stuff that you often hear those leaders say. But is that sort of, is that sort of message resonating now as you talked about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the weakening of that work, or middle class yeah. or, or, or the inability for the working class to get to the middle class? So, you know, here's a little problem with the union's position in Ingersoll, and I get what they're trying to do. They say, we want job guarantees. We want GM to promise they're not going to close this plant no matter what Donald Trump says. And I'm phrasing it exactly like that, because as they hear Donald Trump talk about America first and bringing jobs back, in their mind, what they're hearing is he wants to close down Ingersoll and move those jobs back. Now, poor GM, I actually feel sorry for this. GM has given no indication that closing the plant in Ingersoll is on their radar. I'm not saying that it's not on their radar, but they've never given any indication. So this is almost an irrational fear, not borne out by the employer. It's nothing that GM has done to cause this irrational fear. It is simply the commander-in-chief, and his saber-rattling scares, frankly, scares Canadians. We just don't know what it means, and when we don't know what it means, we imagine the worst. This is why I'm actually not all that hopeful at the moment for a quick settlement here, because GM is saying, well, I I can't give you guarantees, but I'm not planning to close you. Not good enough. I want guarantees, and I'm not sure there's a way to close that gulf. And hopefully over time, uh, maybe cooler heads will prevail, but right now it seems to me a bridge too far for the two sides to cross. How long does Trump have to make America great again? Uh, We've talked about the ability or inability to bring these jobs back. At what point uh, does the working class or middle class say, I I I don't see any change? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, (laughs) I'm kind of laughing here, Scott, because you raise a good question. There are already many people in the United States who, who truly believe that Donald Trump would come into office and milk and honey would start flowing from Washington. And for them, look, it's been nine months, and where the heck is my milk and honey? I was expecting my check in the mail. So they've already turned off. There are others who are prepared to give him more time, and they're looking for other people to blame. As you know, in the um, uh, Senate and the House of Representatives, there's great division between the Republicans and the Democrats, and so people point at that stalemate. This is why it's not getting done. It's not Donald's fault. Donald wants to do good things, but the people there aren't cooperating. I, but I think, you know, more and more I am of the opinion that Donald Trump will be at best a one-term 
president. I, I have a hard time seeing him delivering in, in the time that remains. And remember, America is facing a midterm election next year. They don't want to do anything controversial going into that. He'll then have only another year and a half before he gets into the next presidential election cycle. I, I just don't see where he's going to be delivering on many of those promises. Even something as simple as building the wall, I, I'm not sure there's going to be much done even on that front. Uh, we can't we can't repeal and replace Obamacare. So I think sooner rather than later, but I think most of the people who love him are giving him this year. They're saying, well, look, this is his first year. But if 2018 looks like 2017, it's going to be a lot of disgruntled people. Do Americans care uh, other than they like the attitude? I don't care. It's all the same. They're all the same. All the politicians are the same. Both parties are the same. I like this guy's attitude. And believe me, the Democrats don't seem to be doing much to take advantage of this opportunity, do they? <laughs> well, and that's actually because they don't seem to have a logical leader. For a while there, because Hillary was the logical successor to Obama, they let her fuel the charge. There is nobody now. Bernie will be too old the next time around to, to run. So the, the Democrats don't have a lead runner to send out on these things. That's a problem for them. Hopefully they'll figure around that. So for Donald Trump, I, I, you know, his attitude, yes, I think many people love the idea. We're bringing in an outsider. We're going to shake things up. Remember, he's going to drain the swamp. Uh, and yet this outsider has quickly seemed to be very much an insider. Uh, he brought in all these billionaires into his uh, portfolios, and we've already seen a number of them have to leave. Just last week he lost a health minister, or excuse me, a secretary of health, because they were spending money on private planes. And I think people are saying, I, I like the attitude, but I also thought you'd be this breath of fresh air. And I'm not seeing where anything has changed. And the question again will be who they blame for that. And I think they will try to blame, or certainly Donald will try to blame, the Senate and the House of Representatives. But I think it's becoming a harder and harder sell. Uh, when you even see some stalwarts in the Republican Party this weekend, there was a senator who had supported Donald Trump and everything he asked him to. And he came out and said, it's like a daycare center in, yeah. the, in the White House. I can't support this anymore. He is losing support, whether he likes it or not. That may be another question to this, too, Todd, is, or uh, to, to Scott. Who do they see as the logical successor? Will it be Pence? You know, Pence was at a football game on the weekend and marched away when they, when the fellows kneeled for the national anthem. Like, tell me that wasn't planned. I mean, as if he didn't know that was going to happen. Really? Was that a shock to you? Yeah, exactly. But I'm not sure he's the logical successor. So you, you could very well have a situation where both parties have a real mm. void in leadership going to the next presidential campaign. If I was the Democrats, I'd want to start fielding a couple of people out there to see if we could grab the high ground. But it could also be we'll just wander into this one fairly leaderless. Uh, that's a very good point. Uh, are, they, are, are they cultivating the young talent, either of these parties? Yeah, you know... I mean, Hillary where's the Clinton, where's where's the person that's under 50? Right. Well, Hillary Clinton was a great example. You know, she seemed to be the heir apparent, but she is roughly the same age as Donald Trump. I think there's just a, a year apart, and that means they're both in their 70s. Where is that 50-year-old firebrand? I've heard some stories of some governors, and I've also heard some stories of some... some um, uh, senators, but here at this time where they should really be able to seize a national spotlight by taking a story out there, I, I just haven't seen anybody coming to the forefront. Uh, at the moment, I think the Democrats' best hope is that Oprah wants to run for president. <laughs> yeah, wow. That would be the only thing that could top Trump, that's for sure. Oprah or maybe Ellen, one yeah, of those exactly, two. Yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. Why, uh, why not more populism, uh, or sorry, is the populism uh, uh, movement growing in Ontario, because this would, or sorry, in Canada, because this would suggest it's not if we're not into a Canada first policy. Right. It's not. It's not. But also in this in this report uh, that came out, it said 22% of those surveyed thought Canada should become more isolated and put Canada first. Now that number is low compared to the 60%. 22 is very low, but it's actually the highest it's been in nearly a decade. Uh, prior to this, it was very clear that Canadians wanted a more open policy. This Canada first, although it's still tiny, has grown a bit. And I think there is this question that faces both the provincial leaders and the federal leaders. You have a middle class that's struggling. Whatever you've done so far hasn't given them the, the hope they did. Remember, Justin got elected on a middle class tax cut, which has now been implemented. You have pay less taxes if you're in the middle class. And the wealthy, he added a tax to the various wealthiest people. And yet, I'm not hearing anyone say, thank you so much, boy, it makes me feel better. They still feel under pressure. So I think this is a challenge going into the provincial election in 2018 and the federal election the year after that. What can you find in your goodie bag that is really going to help the middle class feel stronger than it was? And I'm not sure what it is other than maybe a stronger economy. In, in your news broadcast before we went on, it said that 
you know, our, our economy may be leading the G7 in Canada, growing it at 3%, maybe even a little over 3%. You get a couple of years of that, I think there's a lot of people who are going to feel better about their circumstances. But we really had had a 10-year period after that 2007 recession where there really wasn't much growth. Nobody felt good about the economy. If you can add a good economy to everything else, maybe, maybe the middle class will feel stronger. Uh, taxation going to be the issue going into the next election. Obviously, as you mentioned, uh, announcing a, a tax on uh, for employees that are offered discounts through their company and such. This just seems like you're scraping the bottom of the barrel for this stuff. I mean, my goodness, what else can you take? Take the holiday turkey. <laughs> yeah, or here's that box of chocolates that we all share. Sure. Oh, no, well, that, that's 20 cents of chocolate. We better keep track of that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this one doesn't seem well planned on my on, on their part. I will say, though, that the tax changes that Morneau moved forward around some entrepreneurs and small business people, I know it got the small business people all upset. We're still waiting for the actual final draft legislation I think it's still well-intended. It's, it's after, quote-unquote, small businesses, but at the wealthiest end of that, there are, I think it was 80% of small businesses that have a profit of $2.3 million don't pay enough tax. Well, we're not talking about the mom-and-pop grocery store. We're not talking about that little clothing retailer. Those are pretty big small businesses. And if we truly get that out, I think that will help them a little bit. I just don't think this is a good thing for them to pursue at this time. Uh, go after anything else. You go after the cable companies. Do, do something with my phone bill. <laughs> you know that will make me feel better because we pay the highest rates on those things. Do something there. will make me feel better. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thank you for the time. Appreciate I'm, it. I'm going back to my bowl of turkey soup. All right, you enjoy that for us. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. A new uh, poll, which we've been talking about today, which was uh, issued by uh, ECOs in the Canadian press, uh, studying Canadians and how they feel about their future and what is going on with the economy. And uh, many feel that they're falling backwards and and Canadians are pessimistic about uh, their economic future. Uh, To talk more about all of this, Benjamin Tull is with us, Deputy Chief Economist, CIBC. He is with us now. Hello, Benjamin. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thank you. A pleasure. Uh, it seems, Benjamin, we have a new category now that we didn't have uh, before the recession of 2008, and that's the working class. Describe this. Yes. Uh, listen, we have seen a situation in which uh, you know wages are rising in only one particular segment of the market, and that's high skill. We see jobs be- being created in this portion of the market, but also in low skill. What's not there? is really the middle class. Uh, it's really disappearing. It's not a political slogan. It's a reality. And by the way, it's not a Canadian story. You see it in the U.S., you see it in Europe. In many ways, uh, that's basically Trump. That's the message, and Trump is the messenger. So something big is happening here. It's beyond uh, you know, the cycle. It's something structural that is not skipping Canada. So it seems that we're all aware of it now. It has made its way into uh, politics and in the populist movement. How do we move forward out of this? How do we, how do we bring life back to that middle class? You know, the elephant in the room that maybe no politician will never admit, this problem simply does not have a solution. That's the reality and that's the elephant in the room, that at least in the short term, this problem simply does not have a solution. Uh, Trump is trying to solve the problem through trade. We are trying to solve the problem through taxation. But the real issue, of course, is a mismatch in the labor market. We have people without jobs, and we have jobs without people. We are in a transition period in which uh, we have a situation that simply the skill set available in the economy is inconsistent with what the economy needs. You know, the money... Are we, are we addressing that, Benjamin? And is this just a period of transition? This is a period of transition, and how we, adjust, how we deal with it is, uh, is going to determine how long this transition is going to be. We all know the solution. The solution is education. The solution is a right um, immigration policy. But we are moving very slowly on that. We still have an education system that is inconsistent, detached from what we are seeing in the labor market. And we have a young generation, uh, you know, people in their late 20s, early 30s, in many ways the lost generation that are struggling in the labor market because the education system basically failed them. 
And I think we have to start changing it. And again, in the short term, it's not going to happen. And that's the elephant in the room. And that's the harsh reality. You cannot take a manufacturing worker, uh, you know, in his 40s or her 40s and retrain them to be a computer engineer overnight. You know, it's not going to happen. And that's an issue that we see everywhere. And that's why, by the way, the quality of employment in Canada is going down. The number of people making below average wage is actually rising. So it's not just an American story or European story. It's everywhere. And again, at one point, those baby boomers uh, will be retiring. But that's a decade, 15 years from now, not now. They are more engaged in the labor market. They are staying uh, longer in the labor market. So there is this uh, bottleneck that is preventing young people from entering the market. And then the skill mismatch is making it worse. And that's more or less where we are. So there is a significant uh, issue here that we have to deal with. Education is the number one solution here. You talked about a skills uh, mismatch, Benjamin. Uh, can, is, it, is it wrong to assume we can all perform as a society in this high-skill workplace? Or is it just a case of bringing everybody up to that level? Or are we, are, are we naive to think we can do that? I don't think we can do that. I think the reality is that the... The, the labor market of tomorrow will be a much more uh, fascinating, exciting, uh, fulfilling labor market. But the the world that is protecting this paradise will be much, much taller, much higher. And you will have to climb over it. And some people will not be able to climb this wall. And if you ask me what is the number one issue facing the Canadian uh, society, economy uh, over the next decade, two decades, I will suggest it's widening income gap. And uh, yes, uh, the taxation system is one way of dealing with it, but we have to find a way to lift more people. And the only way to do it is through education and relevant education. Is it, uh, is it about um, increasing the level of education of the workplace so we can all perform in these high-skilled jobs, or is it providing more social services for those at the other end of the spectrum? I, I think it's both, because clearly uh, there will be some people that will fall behind and will not take part in the labor market to the extent that they should, and that's where we need as a society to help and support them. But for the rest, which will be the majority, we need to provide the tools so the education system today is not really working to maximize the potential of what we have. An example, you know, we have uh, roughly 20-25% of people going to colleges are coming from universities. You know, so they go to university, they do a degree or two, they get into a $20,000 debt, and then they realize that uh, they cannot do anything with those degrees, and they go back to do a diploma in college. I say, why don't you combine, uh, you know, college and university education together under one umbrella, one tuition? Mm. You can have a BA in uh, history and a minor in plumbing. You know, this is not a joke in Germany. This is not a joke in Sweden. Here it's unheard of because we haven't graduated uh, to basically see this labor market reacting to the reality of what we are seeing. Benjamin, what will the middle class be doing 20 years from now? What will, what will their occupations be? Well, you know, think of it, you know, we know that every kid now should be doing coding, yeah? Mm-hmm. So I think that people who will be doing coding will be basically the manual level of 20 years from now. Right. That would be the simple task, coding, these kind of things. And then you will have much more advanced uh, aspects of that. Uh, not too many people will do manual labor. Of course, uh, you will see personal services clearly, clearly taking off because you will have older population with disposable income that will need niche markets and niche services. That's a market that clearly will grow. Anything to do with aging population clearly will grow when it comes to employment. But uh, when it comes to manufacturing, when it comes to uh, high tech, it will be extremely advanced. But of course, within the high tech, it will be manual labor that today we perceived as high tech. How do governments react to this, Benjamin? Um, you know, especially when you look at this headline falling backwards, Canadians pessimistic about uh, their economic future. Uh, in, in Ontario, um, you know, we're, we're feeling the pinch of, of higher electricity bills. Uh, 
federally now, they're talking about income tax, or sorry, not income tax, different uh, tax reform and such. Today, a story about, you know, even taxing a discount that a, an employee may get from their company. How do governments react to this? Well, first of all, let's uh, realize one thing, you know, this survey that's saying that Canadians are not extremely optimistic is happening when the economy is doing wonderfully. You know, the economy expanded in the sec- second quarter of this year by 4.5%. But Benjamin, not- if the economy is doing so well, why aren't we feeling it? Why aren't we feeling, why are we pessimistic? Because not all of us are part of it. Yeah? Mm. That's the widening income gap that I'm talking about. Mm. And that's why I'm telling you that it's more structural than a cyclical story. Something is happening here that is beyond the cycle, and that's the mismatch. And yes, I think that governments do realize that that's the case. Clearly, uh, there is a realization uh, in many governments that uh, we need to lift and help them the middle class. And, uh, you know, we're trying to do it, but I think that uh, the only way to really deal with this issue in a very efficient way uh, and maybe permanent way is really to lift um, the the skill set of those people that now are unemployable. Uh, we're certainly hearing more and more programs. Uh, Bill Kelly, our uh, announcer that was on before uh, me, uh, doing a, a broadcast for McMaster, uh, Mohawk, the two, the college and the university working together to do exactly what you're talking about. Are we addressing this? Is this a, a fixable solution or is this for the next generation? Well, I think that we should start now. Only 8% of students are in a combined mixed program, university slash college. And what's happening is that we have been telling young Canadians uh, for years now, go study those, uh, what we call STEM, you know, science, technology, mm-hmm. math, uh, engineering uh, fields. Uh, go study that because that's where the jobs are. Fine. Sure. Lately, just lately, over the past few years, we see actually enrollment rates on those uh, fields rising. That's wonderful. But guess what? Tuition in math, in engineering, in uh, science have been rising double the rate that other disciplines have seen. Hmm. That's the opposite of what we should be doing. We should subsidize those fields, not make it more uh, less affordable. So that's more or less where we are. We haven't really changed the way we think about how did you, high education and the labor market in a very significant way, and that's a precondition for anything. What advice would you give to parents who are you know, high school age kids or kids that are in university, college, what have you, or, or approaching that? What would you say to them? What advice would you give to them? Well, I say, listen, follow your dream. That's fine. I don't want you to study that something that you hate, but while following your dream, try to to study something that will give you an alternative, something that maybe is connected, but something practical. So that's what we should be doing as parents. And now we should require the government to provide the framework for this kind of advice to work, namely a program that will combine something practical and something desirable. And we can do that because other countries do that. So we need to put pressure on uh, the education system, on governments to really change the way we think while telling our kids to follow the dream, but still remain realistic. And is this not ongoing, Benjamin? I mean, how do you educate someone for something, think, knowing that they will probably change jobs uh, 10 times, 15 times in their in their career, as opposed to the old days when you'd work for a company for 30 some odd years? And that's why I think that university and college is such a good idea, because universities will give you, will give you those soft uh, uh, skills that every employer is looking for, that you can apply for many different type of jobs while a college will give you the ability will give you the ability to start with something that is practical and then you start you get into the you know the zone and then you start changing jobs but first of all you need the break and that's what college can help you to do so we need it to i think that will enhance and will elevate uh, the quality of our labor force and you know what if my plumber has a ba in history i think he will be or she will be a much better plumber uh, it, it makes total sense. Uh, critical thinking and the skill as well. Uh, how does how does confidence or the lack of confidence in this scenario, how does it affect the economy? How does it affect the people's psyche, interest rates, all of that? Well, it's all about confidence, isn't it? You know, 
the minute you have a situation in which people don't feel confident, they don't invest, they don't invest, they don't hire, they don't hire, you don't have wage rising, and you have an economic uh, situation that is less than desirable. And that's more or less uh, what we might be seeing if this does not change. Uh, so we have the cycle, and the cycle does help, but we have structural changes that really impact the psyche and the confidence of uh, people from a long-term perspective, and we have to deal with it. I think that Canada is doing better than many other uh, countries, but we are not immune uh, to what's happening. This mismatch in the labor market, that's Trump. That's the message, and he's the messenger. And we cannot just uh, assume that we are immune to that. So the point here is that uh, I think we are in a good spot. I think that our equilibrium is better than some other countries, but we have to enhance our ability to deal with economic issues like a recession or the structural change, namely the shrinkage of the labor of the middle class. And I think it can be done. It's not too late. But as you said, Benjamin, this is a long-term process, uh, one that the immediate generation may not feel. Do you see the populist movement growing until that happens? Um, will, will it continue to grow until that system has changed? Yes, that's, that's, a, that's a big question, and I really don't know. Uh, you look at the situation in the U.S., uh, you know, you have one possible crazy scenario in which... Uh, you know, all those people in Michigan, Ohio, waiting for the jobs and the jobs not coming back. Maybe in the next elections, they can go to the extreme left. They can go to the, you know, Sanders of the world. You know, free education, free health, free everything. I don't know. Say, if Trump cannot get my job back, maybe I let the government take care of me. I Hmm. really don't know. But we are in this transition period where we are trying to figure out where we go from here. What would you say to a Canadian who's feeling pessimistic? Well, first of all, we live in the best country in the world, so don't feel so pessimistic, clearly. The economy is doing fine. I think that we are going through a transition that we have the ability to control over time. I think that instead of being um, you know, pessimistic, I think that you should basically more, be more active and demand those changes from uh, our politicians, the education system, and really get involved in that. I think that, again, compared to other countries, this is the best place to be. And even economically speaking, the IMF is telling us that we're going to lead uh, the OECD in terms of growth. So we are fine. We just have to find a way to deal with it from a micro perspective. I say invest in yourself. That's the best insurance policy. Benjamin Tall has been with us, Deputy Chief Economist, CIBC. Benjamin, thank you so much for the time. Uh, Much appreciated as always. A pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The latest version of the Canadian Revenue Agency's tax folio advises employers that when an employee receives a discount on merchandise uh, due to employment, that the value of the discount uh, is generally included in the employee's income. So um, what this means, if I'm understanding it correctly, is, you know, if you're working somewhere and you get a discount, an employee discount on the merchandise or services or whatever that's that's being offered there, uh, that's obviously one of the perks of, uh, of working uh, wherever it is that you're working. Uh, now it appears that uh, they want that taxed. To talk more about all of this, Carl Littler is with us, Vice President of uh, Public Affairs, Retail Council of Canada, and on the line with us now. Carl, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. You're welcome. So, how does the old system work? How and, and what will be the new changes if, uh, if in fact, it goes through? So, the old system works this way: if you get so, and this comes from the CRA's own um, employer guide. So, a discount is not normally included in income, except where it is so below employer cost, or where there's reciprocal discounts between multiple employers. Other than that, it's never been included in income. And there's 2 million retail employees across the country, I would say, all but a handful have some form of discount. Um, and this has been true essentially since there was an income tax act. So it's quite a change that they're proposing. And they're proposing now that unless you offer the exact same discount to somebody else, then you are um, then you are going to have to include it in income. And um, some of the implications of that will be obvious. But the first one is, if I'm the employee, I got to think, well, do I want to be taxed on this? You know, the employer's got to start tracking it against fair market value. At some point, either, you know, modest income workers are going to pay more tax or 
employee discounts are going to be done away with. So we don't think that's a good idea, obviously. You talked about uh, there are certain implications if it's below cost. How do you determine that? How do you determine that that value? And is this designed to, uh, I guess, take care of loose ends? Well, I think it's a lot more than loose ends. I mean, it's very simple for employers to administer right now. They just know not to sell to their employees, even when discounted, below their own cost. That's how they. That's how you administer it. They don't have to track the individual purchases of a bottle of shampoo or a pair of jeans. They just make sure that the discount does not actually drop it below their own cost of, of, of purchase from wholesale. And what if they decide to drop it below cost? What, what's the danger in that? Well, I'm, uh, I'm not sure that there is a vast danger. Um, and that's not the issue here so much, right? But they, I guess at some level, if you're kind of giving it away, as opposed to selling it or getting very close to giving it away, then the agency might say, well, you're finding another way of paying your employee that isn't in the, in the tax net. So right. they, they've just had a longstanding rule that says, as long as, you, as long as your discounted product for your employee is above your own employer cost, um, but obviously below the normal retail price, you're fine. And right. that's what's changing with this new, uh, new folio. Uh, and, and what's the the, the uh, condition in there? Unless the discount is available to the public at some point, how does that disqualify this? Because I guess the notion then is, if a, if the same discount is available to a bunch of others, then the discount isn't solely attributable to em- your employment. So therefore, they'd find that as kind of an escape valve. But that doesn't make a lot of sense because you know employees work the company. The you know they work for their employees the whole year long, so they enjoy a discount every day. Um, the notion that there should be a parallel discount for everybody else or some defined group of redheaded veterans or whatever it is doesn't make a whole lot of sense as tax policy. Uh, why is the government doing this? Why is this even on their radar? So I guess what I would say is this bubbled up from the middle ranks of the Canada Revenue Agency. And I guess from our perspective, it hasn't had enough oversight. It hasn't had enough what we would call adult supervision. Um, but at a certain point, these things kind of gather a force of their own. And so this one was moving quite quickly to be implemented in January. Obviously, that's why we and others like the Canadian Payroll Association have stepped in to say, you know, this makes no sense with all of the public policy issues in the world. Why would you be taxing, uh, you know, taxing somebody on a $20 saving on a pair of jeans? Uh, and it seems that nowadays these sort of discounts being offered by companies are drying up. So, again, why would this be on the radar now? Well, I don't know that they're drying up. Um, I think that probably as retail margins have got tighter, there's some limit to the ability of an employer to discount beyond a certain point because then it would drop below their employer cost. Right. But I, don't, I think most, most employees in, in, in retail and frankly, not just retail, restaurants, travel, uh, you know, and, and it's quite a list, um, enjoy some form of discount on, on what's sold at their workplace. Will this bring in much revenue for the government, do you think? Um, I, I don't believe so for two reasons. One, it's pretty small change to begin with. And secondly, what will happen is either employers will cancel their discount program because it's too difficult to track and there's no demand, or employees will say, well, I don't want the discount because I don't want to bear the tax consequence. And, you know, uh, getting back to the employees, or sorry, the employers' uh, uh, thoughts on this, obviously, if it's going to cost them more to just do the administration of all of this, it's probably not a perk anymore, is it? Well, um, I mean, there's a reason why employers offer these employee discounts. First, it's a way to sort of show some love to people who work for you. Um you know, secondly, in some cases, I mean, people are actually modeling the product. You know, they're wearing sure. it in clothes stores, and they're actually sort of wearing, you know, the kind of stuff that's sold. It's often they make good ambassadors, kind of telling people, like, I got this great thing at work, you should try it. So there's all kinds of good reasons why employer discount, employee discounts are offered by employers. I just don't know why they would come up with this crazy compliance burden and complicate it and also potentially you know, cost uh, cost a bunch of modest, modest income Canadians a whole pile of additional tax money. Is or this, sorry? Drive them out of the, oh, sorry? No, go ahead, sorry. No, or, 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 or get them to drop what is a reasonable perk of their employment. Uh, this just appears to be a tax grab, does it not? 
Um, Would Canadians view this as unfair? I mean, you know, we're, we're certainly seeing in the headlines of late, uh, obviously, the federal government going after uh, small business and, and, you know, sprinkling of, of, uh, of uh, benefits and such. Um, and now this. I mean, it, it, is this government getting a reputation that uh, it's taxing a little too heavy or certainly looking at the wrong person for, for revenue? Well, I certainly said they'd be looking at the wrong person for revenue in this case, but um, I, I don't know that it comes from the government in the sense that it comes out of the cabinet or out of the, you know, the liberal government. I mean, this is something that kind of bubbled up from the public servants at a mid-level at CRA. So I'm not sure there's any kind of grand design here. It's more a matter of making sure that there's enough supervision so that, you know, these ideas don't make a lot of sense. I, if you've got a second, I, I would make one other observation. Mm-hmm. Their view is that, in principle, if you get something out of your employment, well, that's a form of compensation, and therefore you should pay tax. Yeah. And in 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 a in the most general sense, you know, sure. I mean, a workplace coffee has some notional value, right? If you use your, you know, if you use a cell phone provider for work to take a personal call, what you're going to tax on that? Yeah. I mean, you can take a principle to an absurd degree, and in this case, we think they are. Well, and I'm sure you're not going to find, you know, most employees will say, hey, I'm giving a lot of love here. I'm doing a lot over and above that I never get paid for as well. So, I mean, does that all not come out in the wash? I mean, at what point do you do, do employees say, screw this, I'm putting my time in and that's it? Uh, maybe. And I mean, you know, we, we like to have a good relationship with our employees, right? And so it doesn't make sense for us that they would get punished to push a Revenue Canada principle to an absurd degree. Do people feel uh, that these discounts are worth it if everyone else is getting, you know, like we often hear with car commercials, you're getting the employee discount. If you're the employee, aren't you going, well, geez, what's the sense of me working here if I'm getting, they're getting the same thing I'm getting? Well, I mean, I, look, I don't think people work primarily because of, of the discounts. I mean, mm-hmm. to begin with, I, you know, there might be some people in high fashion who want to work at a fashion outlet, but I don't think people are mainly employed for right. that reason. Right. Um, I guess the point is you get your discount all year long. You can use it as you see fit or not use it. It's kind of a flexibility thing. So, you know, I, I, to me, I think it still has value. It's just the value is going to be in question if you think, oh, I've got to include that on my tax return now. What about the Christmas turkey? I mean, didn't we fight about this a while ago where all of a sudden they were taxing the Christmas turkey or any bonus that they gave you? I, I, I can't remember that one, but, but it, you know, it's that level of silliness that we're talking about. Uh, what about a discount for personal consumption uh, as opposed to for wholesale, wholesale reselling? Are, are employees using their discounts and then reselling this stuff? Uh, I mean, I'm sure it happens, but any employer is going to view it a bit differently if their employee is essentially setting themselves up in competition with lower prices. So I don't think that employers are going to fail to notice if somebody decided they needed 300 pairs of jeans in different sizes. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Do you think, where do you think this is going to go? I mean, you know, again, going back to uh, the federal government taxing small business, you know, some are paying attention, some aren't paying attention. It seems like more, this might get more people's attention. How do you think this is going to play out? I, I think that they will ultimately back down. Um, you know, I'm not 100% certain that they'll back down, which is one of the reasons why we're obviously, uh, you know, pretty active on the issue. But I think that as sort of more senior people bring their thought processes to bear on this. As it gets some political oversight, I think the government will take a look at this and say, this is not good for a constituency, you know, that we care about, and it sure isn't good for us, so we're not doing it. How, that's where they're gonna go. how do retailers view this who, you know, margins are pretty slim the way they are. They're just trying to offer their employees a little discount to, to you know, just for retention. Uh, more, you know, as much as yeah. anything, how do they feel that, you know, we're giving our employees something and now the government's taking that as well? I mean, do, do they look at it like, gee, we're trying to help here and you're taking it out of our hand or you're, you're taking it out of their hand before we even give it to them? Uh, I mean, you know, I think people are universally negative on this idea. You know, you usually get one or two outliers. I have not heard from a single person in retail who thinks that what CRA is proposing is a good idea. Does this mean the government's looking for money? I mean, uh, it seems we're hearing a lot of tax lately. Uh, is this just a tightening of the belt loops, just good old-fashioned accounting, see where we're wasting money, that sort of thing? Or it, it, does this appear to be a search? 
No, I don't think it's a big strategy. I mean, I think as you pointed out earlier, you know, maybe there won't be much revenue in this because ultimately employees are not going to take their, you know, the, the discounts and some employers are no longer going to offer them. So there's not a lot of money in there. I think this is literally a kind of rogue activity from a particular kind of mid-level zone within CRA. They've got a principle they want to defend. They've taken it to the point of absurdity, and they're just insistent, and it's going to require somebody higher up in the government to say, no, we're not doing that. Is this the sort of thing the CRA should be doing? I mean, isn't this for government to do, not the CRA? Well, the CRA interprets the tax law, because even though the Income Tax Act is huge and lengthy and, you know, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages, even then there has to be interpretation. So it's CRA's job to interpret. And, and you know, normally they interpret things reasonably, but this seems like it's gone off the rails somehow. Is it their job to say, hey, hang on a sec, government of the day, uh, you're missing something here and you could be making more money here? Um, no. Um, so... The, the way it works is that the way you're, you know what the way you know what it almost sounds like to me, Carl, is that the CRA is worse than the government. <laughs> well, in this case, I think the CRA has come up with a boneheaded idea that the government will ultimately not stand behind. Yeah. Uh, should we take? Uh, should we put much weight in this because it still is just from the CRA and not from the government at this point? Oh, uh, no, because if CRA interprets it this way, and they, they can enforce compliance. I mean, the CRA has the right to audit and to, to, you know, demand payment. And obviously, taxpayers have the capacity to push back and litigate. But that's not plausible for most people working in retail who are getting a discount on a pair of jeans. So, no, no, CRA's word is effectively law insofar as interpretation is. Uh, if not here, somewhere else, are they looking? Yeah. We've not encountered that elsewhere. I mean, obviously, we are, you know, we're, we're, we're watching the small business taxation issue and seeing what the next uh, iteration of that looks like. Um, I don't have a sense that they're sort of like combing their couch looking for spare change. Mm. It's, not the, it's not the impression I have. What I, the impression I have is this one kind of got away from them because they weren't paying enough attention to what the mid-level CRA folks were doing. And I can see retailers just saying, this just isn't worth it for us. It's just too hard to track, too much paperwork. Yeah, I mean, you've got 2 million employees and, you know, in many cases, there are multiple small discounts, right? If it was a, a workplace meal or, a, or you know, a, like a, a thing of shampoo or something like that. I mean, you know, we're talking, you know, tens of millions, you know, of transactions, right? And then you've got the issue of what's the fair market value. It's on sale last week. Is that fair market value? My competitor's price is higher or lower. What's fair market value? I, I could have used a coupon, you know, like you, you kind of drive yourself crazy doing that. Carl Littler has been with us, Vice President of Public Affairs, Retail Council of Canada. Carl, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've uh, heard many times, and uh, we've had experts on this show saying that the issues with mental health in this country are at an epidemic level. Uh, Pandemic, I've even heard some say. And that this is a huge issue, especially for young people, anxiety, all of that. Uh, So if this is such a big deal and so many people are suffering from it, why are we not doing more from a government level uh, to pay for this sort of stuff and get us the treatment that we need? If this is a epidemic, then why don't we address it as such? Um, you know, many may say the same thing about the opioid crisis. Now, obviously, uh, the deaths surrounding the opioid crisis are certainly a lot greater, but this is all related. Uh, The uh, article, which is in the Huffington Post uh, by Patricia Tomasi, reads, Ontario's new psychotherapy funding still doesn't address some big issues. And, of course, Patricia Tomasi is with us now, mental health writer, former broadcast journalist, and uh, expert on this. Patricia, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, no problem. Glad to be here. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly. So what's new with this? Is there anything new here? Huh. Well, it's a good question. I guess what's what's new and uh, is that, for the first time, Ontario is looking at publicly funding structured psychotherapy. That's that's what's new, and that's what's, you know, uh, some people will call it uh, revolutionary or, you know, taking that first step, which is 
which is fantastic. You know, once this program gets up and running, Ontario will be the first province to provide structured psychotherapy in the country. However, we've, been, we've been talking about this yeah. for a tremendous long time. You know, let's talk about it. Let's mm-hmm. talk about it. We've been talking about it for a long time. Why is this taking so long? Um, I don't know. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I think it's just because of the way, I think personally, it's because of the way our, our public health system uh, was, was created. You know, it, it was created based on physical ailments. So now with all of the awareness that we've had over the last few years over mental illness, we're starting to understand that mental uh, health is physical health. And so it needs to be treated with as much uh, value and consideration as physical health. Because can you imagine telling someone with cancer that they have to pay for their own radiation? I mean, this is the kind of leap that we're having to take now to understand that mental illness is physical illness and needs to be treated with the same amount of um, urgency and respect as physical ailments because it's, it's the same thing. Uh, so are we to interpret this by OHIP will now pay for psychotherapy? They will, but, you know, if, if you don't break down the announcement properly and you just hear that phrase right there, great, they're going to pay for psychotherapy, you might think that you can go into your doctor's office tomorrow and get a referral to see a psychotherapist because psycho, psychotherapists in Ontario, which there are 4,000, they are not covered under OHIP and under this program uh, looks to be that will not be covered under OHIP. So what does this mean? What do we get? Okay, so from what I've been able to deduce in talking to the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care and other experts, is that they're going to be funding structured psychotherapy in three ways. And the first way is in-person psychotherapy, but that will be led through community mental health agencies. So there are you know, a number of community mental health agencies all across the province um, for children and youth as well that have, you know, they have some social workers, um, they have a, a, maybe a psychologist, you know, maybe... Uh, a psychotherapist and if you go to one of these mental health agencies if you self-refer you go to a family doctor you might be able to get in if there's not you know huge long waiting list you might be able to get a couple sessions Um, so it looks like they want to expand those kind of uh, agencies to deliver psychotherapy then there's a program called bounce back which is a coaching program managed by the Canadian Mental Health Association so you would basically do this on your own with some telephone support and through workbooks to help people with depression and anxiety. And the third way is through online mental health uh, self-management tools by the Ontario Telemedicine Network. So, I mean, while it's a great start, I just, as a person who suffers from anxiety and depression, I write about it. I have a child going through different mental health issues. I've been through community health agencies. I've been through every system imaginable, I just don't understand why, I mean, I do understand why it's it's a huge cost, but we have 4,000 psychotherapists already trained to deliver expertly trained psychotherapy. Why not work through them? Why not go through them so that people can get the help they need sooner rather than later? I just don't know how long this is going to take. It almost sounds like they're creating another government bureaucracy to run this sort of thing. And as you said, uh, these people are already out there. Why just not cover their services like you do any other medical procedure? Right. See, I'm not a psychotherapist, but I speak with psychotherapists. And, and, you know, they obviously um, agree. I mean, I I know there's a a money issue involved in here and that they they would be paid through OHIP and they would receive a lot more patients. But at the end of the day, I think if you ask patients, and the Ontario has, you know, a lot of patients, a patient's first program out now, I think if you ask patients, we would advise to have psychotherapy, uh, psychotherapists covered. Because right now it's it's a two-tiered system. Um, if you don't have coverage through your employer, and even then if you do, it's, it's usually only for about a, a couple sessions and the money runs out. That's why you see a lot of different companies stepping up to the plate and saying, we're going to be funding 
uh, psychotherapy or mental health services, you know, 10,000 a year instead of 500 or because you can't really uh, get to the bottom of anything in one to two sessions. <laughs> no, it's an ongoing process. That's right. So, of course, initially, it's going to be probably a huge cost, but we'll be saving a lot more down the road because if you're not receiving help up front, and, and the research is very strong that psychotherapy and medication together, a combination of both, um, is, is the best form of treatment. In fact, some research says that psychotherapy first instead of medication in, in mild to moderate cases of anxiety and depression works the best. So we know the research is there. Um, it's just, you know, Britain and Australia have done it, and they put up a lot of money up front, but they're seeing great return on investment and great recovery rates that are going to be saving the health system, you know, saving in the long term. So, I mean, what can I say? I'm just an advocate. <laughs> I'm just a mom. But, you know, the yeah. fact the fact that they're, you know, and again, I've had people call this an epidemic. The fact that it is such a big issue, it affects a lot of families. Uh, does it need to be attacked in a different way? I mean, the fact that there is such a volume of people who need this service, how can that be used to help bring costs down? Mm-hmm. Well, we see the NDP uh, asking, you know, trying to start um, conversation around having a ministry of mental health care. Um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that could work. Maybe it won't work in some, some cases. I, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I just know that there's, in my mind, there's an easier way to get access to psychotherapy right now. What the government announced, they're putting together a panel that's going to do research over the next three years. We have an election next year. I mean, it's just, just you're just tired of hearing things announced, and then it's taking years and years to come up with um, a program when we have thousands of people in the province already trained to deliver what patients need right now. Uh, it would seem to me that the government is way behind on this. Uh, is this too big a problem to address the way they are? I mean, that doesn't even seem like it would mend the hole in the bucket, what they're talking about. It just sounds like more bureaucracy. So uh, h- how do you get this genie back in the bottle? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's a big question, and I'm not saying that it's not an easy issue to tackle. Um, you know, I mean, it's easy for me to say, great, fun psychotherapist, but I, I know it's not that easy. It's, it's a huge cost to government. And I know they want to go about it in a way that's standard, which is a good thing. They want this panel is going to be looking at a standard method of psychotherapy so that, you know, someone is not receiving psychotherapy in Thunder Bay and completely different of the quality is completely poor compared to someone in Toronto or vice versa. So there are some good things to this announcement, but um, I don't know. If it's about putting patients first, then why not, why not fund, uh, at least in part, um, some referrals to, to psychotherapists right away? Because when you go to see your family doctor and you want, a, you want some therapy, um, maybe family doctors might have a bit of training in it, although in research they've admitted to not being very well, uh, not being comfortable with delivering psychotherapy. So they could refer you to, let's say, a psychiatrist. But there are, in many areas, the wait list is over a year long. So if you're suffering from severe mental illness, even if it's not severe, even if it's moderate, enough to disrupt your daily life, can you imagine waiting a year Hmm. for therapy. So instead you get a pill, which is fine. I'm totally not against medication. Um, it's it's, a, it's a, a combination option to have with the psychotherapy that helps really well, also speaking from personal experience. But a lot of the times you have to go through different types of medication. And for some people, medication doesn't work at all. The only option left is psychotherapy, in which they have to pay out of pocket. To me, this still seems like closing the barn door after the horse has already gotten out. I mean, you know, like I've talked to uh, uh, experts in this field, teachers, what have you as well, that says like this is a massive problem for even kids. So what about even getting something into schools before it gets to this point? Yeah, I totally agree. And, um, you know, I 
I follow mental health news around the world every day. And I mean, the um, guidance count, the guidance counselor seems to be the first thing that's cut out of a school nowadays. And I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that go a long way in helping all of this? Yes. And in fact, in Ireland, I believe, because I share stories uh, from around the world every day, but I believe it was, it's Ireland that they're actually starting in uh, elementary schools uh, a mental health program that they teach in class every day. Mindfulness. Um, taking a break, some silence, um, just to educate kids about mental health. Because in Ontario, we have 12,000 children on 18 months of wait lists for treatment. This announcement isn't even helping children. <laughs> it's for 16 plus, 16 years and over. Yeah, there's another good point. Um, uh, here, here's, uh, and, you know, I, I guess this is typical uh, of uh, some, uh, you know, reaction. Uh, mental illness is a cash grab for psychiatrists and doctors' employment. Uh, fake hype to create more jobs uh, for doctors at the community's expense. Psychother- psychotherapy is the, jobs of, is the job of our moms and dads around the dinner table. What happens if your mom and dad suffer from mental illness, though? Aren't they just teaching bad habits? Anyway, that's all from one uh, listener. What are your thoughts on those comments? Well, I mean, those are just uneducated comments. Um, I guess that person hasn't been, the message hasn't been getting through about all the awareness that we've all been trying to do over the last few years about mental health and mental illness. This is not a a character flaw or, um, you know, the way that you're, you're raised by your parents um, or decisions you make in your daily life over what's right and what's wrong and how to conduct yourself. This is a physical, clinical ailment that people have and that really, really people don't really get it unless they've had it. And this is why we're trying to, to spread this message that this distinction between mental health as something that you is your fault and something you bring on yourself versus a biological slash environmental uh, ailment that is caused by a number of factors that requires help. And there are different levels to it. This, this is why there's a lot of stigma and a lot of mis- misinformation as well, because you can have someone who suffers from it very mildly and someone moderately and someone severely. So that someone who suffers from it mildly might say, oh, you know, it's nothing. It's not that bad. Just get over it. But there are different levels to it. So if someone's suffering severely, they need much more treatment much sooner than someone suffering from it mildly. But everyone needs attention and treatment. And this isn't something new. This is something that's existed since the dawn of man. Let me ask you, let, let me let me break in there. Uh, does there seem to be more mental illness now? Uh, why are we, why does there appear to be more now as, you know, compared to this person whose email I just read, uh, their era? Why, why is it an issue? Why is it a thing now? Because now... Back, back then it wasn't, right? We just... Uh, we, didn't, we solved our own yeah. problems. We weren't snowflakes. What happened? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then look how we all turned out. Yeah. <laughs> but now it's because we are talking about it and we're much more educated and there are more studies and we understand about the working, about the brain, even though a lot of it is still a mystery. Um, we understand that mental illness is a physical ailment. It's been around with us since the dawn of man and womankind. Um, talking about something like postpartum depression, which I've suffered through twice. This is something they used to call purpural insanity um, back 200 years ago, and there are many, many studies of it from 200 years ago. Um, there, There's reference to it from uh, thousands of years ago. So mental illness um, has existed. We just never talked about it. We brushed it under the carpet. We We didn't understand that this was something that you or I or anybody can go through at any time of our lives. It's, it's genetic as well. There are many factors that influence it. And that's why you're hearing about it more, because we're talking about it more. But it's a double-edged sword, too, because it's great that people are talking about it more. But when they go to their doctor for treatment, oops, treatment's not there. Are we naive, Patricia, to think we can afford this? I mean, you know, especially governments that are that are bleeding money. Um, is it naive to think that we can afford this when we don't pay for things like dentistry, chiropractor, you know, massage therapy? These are all preventive. This is all preventative medicine. It all, we all know it's for 
it's better for us if we all get this. So where does this fit into everything else? Well, I mean, it's just going to be inevitable. If we don't, we don't, we don't fund it now, as you said, this epidemic or pandemic, it's just going to get worse and we're just going to have to be forced to fund it because our resources are going to be depleted. Um, so sooner or later, and hopefully sooner, we'll understand that we're going to be flooding the system with mental health ailments. And if there's not treatment available, people are going to be, uh, there's going to be, you know, right now we spend $50 billion a year uh, uh, in Canada on uh, work-related mental illness. Um, today is World Mental Health Day, and uh, the, the theme is mental health in the workplace. And funny enough, Canada is actually leading in this area and coming up with strategies to help mental health in the workplace. But um, it's inevitable. We're going to have to be funding it. Um, I mean, I don't work in government any longer, I'm not in charge of the budget, but sooner or later, if the fever rises enough, if the, the fever rises to a pitch enough, there's always money to be found. Patricia Tomasi has been with us, mental health writer. Her latest Ontario's new psychotherapy funding still doesn't address some big issues. People who need help already languish on wait lists, and that may not change. You can find it at HuffingtonPost.ca. Patricia, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks. Keep those shorts on. I will try. <laughs> and feel you feel the spirit, too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.